Welcome to Scripture and Tradition. I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and we are here to talk about the Holy Word of God through the lens of our tradition and entering into our own spiritual life by letting Scripture be the way the Lord speaks to us. Now, we'd love to have you be part of the show. You can do so by adding your questions or comments during the live broadcast, which is Tuesday, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in from North America to 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call in, but you can't use that number. It won't work. So call country code 1, area code 205, Two seven one two nine eight zero. You can also send us your questions and comments by email, writing to Scripture and Tradition at ewtn.com, or you can follow us and participate on the show, whether on Facebook or on YouTube. Now today we will wrap up that passage about Jesus healing the daughter of Jairus the synagogue leader, and we will look at the necessity of faith in the midst of grief and suffering and fear. Look at why Jesus allowed only three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to enter Jairus' house with him and witness this miracle. We'll also see that Jesus' invitation to us to have a deeper level of faith is not primarily to witness miracles, but to develop our personal relationship with Him. And that relationship will raise us to eternal life. Okay? So, let's take a look at this. We are continuing on in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 5. And if you have my book, Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee, uh, you can follow along there, too. Now, you can get that book still. We're going to be using it for a while yet. And it is available at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52885, 52885. All right. So, we are dealing with Meditation 5 from the... Uh, passage about Jairus' daughter and the hemorrhaging woman. And this fifth meditation concerns what happened inside the house of Jairus, that is. It says in the text, Matthew 5, verse 37 to 40, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Okay? So this is... Uh, this next uh, part of the miracle. And it begins with uh, these first of three different occurrences of Jesus doing something with only Peter, James, and John. The first of these is this miracle of the raising up of Jairus' daughter. The second is the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. 
and the third will be our Lord in Gethsemane. And these three are called to be close to him. Judas, of course, in Gethsemane had gone to betray him, and then the other eight were falling asleep in a different part of the garden. So we have to ask, why these three? And that's a good question. And there are a few things that we can tell from the texts of Scripture. The first, this hasn't been announced by our Lord. It won't be made known until chapter 8 of this gospel or chapter 16 of uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 9 in Luke's gospel. But Peter will be announced as the leader of all the apostles. That's why he's there to be a witness. Second, we look at James and what's distinct. We don't see James speak much in the Gospels. But he is the first of the apostles to die. And of course, he dies as a martyr. His head is cut off by uh, Herod Agrippa I around the year 40. Uh, to A.D., 41 or 42 A.D. So he's the first disciple to give witness by his blood. And then his brother John is like a bookend. He is the last disciple to die. So, and remember, they are witnesses. And that's what the word martyros in Greek, martyr, uh, means, is witness. So they are going to give witness, Peter as the head of the apostles and the other two as the first and the last to die for Christ. And as such, they are very important witnesses to this uh, event. And that each is a distinctive role, but it's a role of witnessing. So they witness certain miracles that the others do not see, and certain other events, like the transfiguration and Christ's agony in Gethsemane. Okay? So, let's now go on to the, the next part of this episode. Notice how when they entered the house, there were a lot of people lamenting and weeping. Now, this is very typical in many parts of the world. Uh, we in the West, oftentimes tend to hold some of our grief in. That's typically not the case in the Middle East and many other places. People let their weeping and lamentation out, and it's very expressive. Um, and sometimes, you know, they, they would bring in professional mourners. These were people that... Uh, know how to sort of get the emotions going as they, uh, the lamentation and weeping goes on. They sort of let that emotion out, and that helps other people to release their emotions. So this is um, going to be something that's very, very important, um, you know, that they would help that loud lamentation. But there is something that, you know, is going to be problematic here. Let's take a look at them. First, our Lord comes in and says that, our, that the little girl's only asleep. Now, being asleep is a very common idiom for death at that time. That was a common idiom. You know, think about the way we speak about death. A lot of times people don't want to be so harsh and say, well, he's dead. Um, they'll say he passed away. Or they'll say, uh, you, know, you know, various things about people. Sometimes it gets, you know, on a certain popular level, they kick the bucket if you're being disrespectful, they bought the farm, things. The, all of these ways of talking about death are figures of speech, some more cruel and crude, and some, you know, just euphemisms to be nice about it. Falling asleep 
was the euphemism for dying. And, and uh, a lot of people try to make a big theological thing. They all oh, they're asleep, so therefore they are unaware of what happens when they die. When they die, they just sort of fall asleep and they don't know what's going on anymore until the resurrection of the dead. That's taught by a number of uh, pseudo-Christian groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and others. Um, however, it, it's, it doesn't mean that they are in some sort of state of sleep while they're dead. Because when you look at the book of Revelation, ironically, one of the favorite books of Jehovah's Witnesses, the souls in heaven are very much awake and very much alive in Christ. And they're offering prayers and they're aware of what's going on, you know, on earth and so on. So they, you know, don't take one word out of the cultural context to make more of it than you need to. So this is what our Lord says that, you know, they're um, asleep. Why do you make this tumult and weep? because she's just asleep. Well, these probably professional mourners start laughing. See that they can, some people know how to turn it on and off. You know, if it's not the real grief, they just, you know, they just go into this laughter. Um, and this indicates their insincerity, unlike the beatitude Remember the beatitude, blessed are they who mourn. Not those who play act at it. Remember, the word for a play actor in Greek is a hypocrite. That's what the word hypocritos means in Greek, a play actor. So this is something that uh, they were doing. They were being hypocrites and play acting at mourning rather than being able to receive the true blessing of mourners. And they, uh, they, one of the things that they also show is that he is the, Christ becomes an object of ridicule in their hypocrisy and not an object of faith. And in fact, having the mourners there becomes a hindrance to faith. That's why he permits only five believers to stay with him in the little girl's room. Her two parents that called for him and the three disciples that he chose out from the 12. They're allowed to enter the room. And, you know, it's very important uh, to keep in mind that our Lord does not consider mourning and grief inherently evil. It's just, as we I mentioned already in Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this is something that's possible. The problem in the house of Jairus is that these people uh, who were mourning had been fake, and they expressed fake emotion rather than authentic grief. And perhaps one could say that such professionals may not have really loved the girl, but they knew that they would get a good tip if they mourned. You know, and that's what professional mourners did. They expect to be paid for that. And they, you know, would get this extra tip if they do a good job of rousing everybody else to mourn. Now, that contrasts with authentic grief and mourning when people really feel it. You know, the, the older you get, the more likely it is that you know people you love who have died. And, that, and the older you stay around here, the more you'll experience that. That's part of life, that the living longer means losing more friends and loved ones and family members. And that's just a fact of life. And Authentic mourning for somebody that you love can actually be an act of faith. There's an implicit act of faith that, at least to this level, you have a sense that it shouldn't happen, especially if, you know, you, th you think that this person still had so much more to give, had been so good and so loving, and 
whether an accident or disease or some other event that occurs, sometimes as we see today with crime, uh, so many are murdered, those poor college kids um, in Idaho, but many, many thousands of others who are killed in drug wars and such. Um, you know, you say, oh, this is, shouldn't be. And implied in that is a faith that life should go on. And when we think about it more, we have a sense, even when someone is really old, that, oh, it would have been great to have him around a longer time. Uh, because there's an implicit faith in life after death that Christ will raise us up. So even though you know in your head that everybody's going to die, you also have a sense it shouldn't be. There's, you know, death it should be overcome. Life is meant for eternity. And it's very certain that our Lord can deal very well with human grief. He himself grieved for Lazarus when Lazarus died. And this is something that's very, very important for us to understand. Uh, but he doesn't deal well with hypocrites, hypocrisy and play acting. This is why I've made it a, a principle. I learned this many, many years ago that reality is God's friend. And being real and dealing with actual facts as they show up, our interpretation may be wrong. You know, we can sometimes incorrectly understand certain things. That's, that's part of human and you keep experimenting. But so long as you stay close to the facts and reality, the more you will come to know God. That's very important. And, you know, the, the parents could certainly experience the empty place in their hearts as their daughter lay dead. This is the experience that so many people have, that it feels like something's been taken out of your heart when you lose somebody, and they felt that. But they still had faith in Jesus, and that's why he let them in the room. And this is something for all of us to pay attention to and contemplate, that the more we give our Lord the real difficulties in grief, you don't pretend that they're not there. You deal with the real grief and real difficulties. You present that to them and you maintain the truth of your feelings without saying, well, my feelings are right when God seems wrong. You know, I'm going to go with my feelings and not with God. No, no, no. You deal with the reality of your feelings, but you also deal with the reality of what God has taught us about existence and about the world and know that he wants to be present with us in those moments, just like he was present with this family as they were grieving. And so this is something for all of us to consider. Where have any one of us been inauthentic with God? Where have we been inauthentic with our feelings? Where we hid the feelings, denied that we had them, um, denied our authentic ideas, and attitudes. Oftentimes, I experience in my own life when I am trying to be better than I really am, and when I'm being inauthentic, God is silent. God doesn't really enter into my fake ideas or my fake attitudes toward my ideas. He wants to deal with the real experience that I have and deal with me with my real sin, not trying to pretend, I'll be, I'll be good, I promise. I'll be, no, he'll deal with me better, not when I just say I'll be good and I don't do anything to change. He wants to deal with the real temptations and feelings going on. And he gets closer to us the more honest we get. That's why it's good for us to speak to him directly about what we feel inside and what's really going on but at the same time, recognize that his truth, his commandments are right. It's not like the country western song that said, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right, as they engage in a sinful relationship. No, 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 I do want to be right. 
but right now I know I feel wrong and I'm going to bring that to God to heal and forgive rather than say, well, this is how I feel, so I'm going to do whatever I feel like. No, my feelings are not good all the time, but they're real. And so I let God deal with that. And in the face of dealing with yourself as you really, really are, um, it's important maybe just to pray the soul of Christ prayer, you know, and ask the soul of Christ to sanctify you. This sanctification of the feelings is what Christ wants to accomplish, not denial of them. So this would be a good, good way to pray over this in the face of contemplating these hypocrites present in the room and their lack of faith. All right, we're going to take a break. We will come back with the last meditation on this very important passage. So please stay with us. Let us now go to the sixth meditation on this passage in Mark chapter 5. This is where Jesus our Lord raises the little girl from the dead. Now, if you take a look at Mark chapter 5, verses 41 to 43, it says there, He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately, the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. All right, a couple of little things. This is, first of all, something about St. Mark's style of writing. Uh, the Gospel of Mark was composed in Rome, Mark was the amanuensis in Greek, which means secretary. Uh, he was a secretary to St. Peter. This is not mentioned in Scripture, but the fathers of the church all record that Mark was Peter's secretary. And in many ways, the gospel of Mark is the gospel of St. Peter. This is the gospel that he you know, was behind and composed much of, but St. Mark was the one who wrote it down for him, okay? Uh, we don't know how much Greek Peter really knew. Uh, he pro I'm, I'm sure he, Peter could speak Greek, but he may not have been able to write in it. That would be a different thing entirely. So he used a secretary to help. That's very common. And one of the things St. Mark does is uh, he writes down um, a number of Aramaic words throughout the gospel. For instance, in Mark 3, 17, he refers to James and John as Boanerges, the sons of thunder. And then seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 11, uses the Aramaic word korban, which means an offering to God. In fact, uh, in the Maronite church, we talk about the liturgy as the korbono, the, which is the Syriac pronunciation of korban, meaning bringing near, that's its root, but it also means offering to God, and that's how it's used. And then in uh, Mark 7, verse 34, we see the ephatha. Ephatha is, means be open. That's another Aramaic word when he heals the guy who's deaf. And then refers to his father's Abba. Abba is, and that's in Mark 14, verse 36, when he's in Gethsemane. Uh, Abba is not Hebrew, that's Aramaic. Um, Av is the word in Hebrew for father. Uh, Abba 
is used to this day, still used in Israel. Little children will uh, use that to mean dad or daddy, you know, so it has that sense. Uh, but Abba is uh, the um, Aramaic form. And also uh, Mark 15 verse 22 calls the place of the crucifixion Golgotha. Golgotha is also Aramaic, meaning the place of the skull. And then Aramaic is also used when our Lord cites Psalm 22, verse 1, um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he, he likes to include the Aramaic with translation into Greek um, because this was uh, a style that was much appreciated in uh, Rome. It's uh, something that people in, in his day uh, found, you know, somewhat exotic to have these foreign words. And, you know, people still do that uh, in a number of uh, hymns. They'll sometimes include Hebrew words. Uh, sometimes they, um, the pronunciation drives me crazy. There's a hymn that talks about God as Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> it, would, it would be Yir'eh. Not gyra. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yir'eh, which means he will see to it and in that sense provide, you know. Um, but despite the mispronunciation, people still like to have a little bit of Hebrew tossed in. Sometimes people toss in Hebrew and Greek words and sermons. I do that on a regular basis to show some of the nuances. So it was just popular and still is in a way. But that's style. Far more to the point is Jesus' human touch and his authoritative word go together in this and effect a miracle. So remember how he touched the leper in Mark 1 verse 41? And the hemorrhaging woman touched the tassel of his garment in Mark 5 verse 28 to 30. Um, it would uh, be something here, too, when he touches the corpse of this girl. Any one of those acts, touching a hemorrhaging woman, a leper, or a corpse, would make Jesus ritually unclean. However, this gets at a key element of who Christ is, because his touch makes all three of them clean so that uncleanness did not come to him. He healed the leper, he healed the hemorrhaging woman, and he raised the dead girl to life. And so the, our Lord does not get the contagion of uncleanness on him, but rather he gives cleanness to those who were unclean. And that's a very important thing to understand that's going on here that he is able to have this kind of uh, power to cleanse from uncleanness. It's a transformation that heals them. Now, in this, we also see that Christ is exercising his authority, the authority of his word. We had seen that back in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, where he did not speak like the scribes and Pharisees, but spoke as one having authority. That's how Jesus speaks. And he does the same thing with uh, when he speaks to the demons and silences them. And when he has the Sabbath regulations, he speaks as one having authority because he could command the unclean spirits and they would obey him. This authority now affects death. Death itself has to obey his authority like the demons did, like the leprosy did. So now even death itself is submissive to the authority of Christ's word. And this gets at a very important element, that with all of these miracles, Christ's authority is shown. And that's why faith in Jesus is so central to all of these miracles. 
It's not just, oh, wow, great miracles, cool. No, more importantly than those miracles is the faith that they evoke. Because lots and lots of people, just like the crowd that was bumping into Jesus, but didn't really have faith like the woman, people saw many of Jesus' miracles, but then later on they turned against him uh, and yelled, crucify him. It's not just seeing a miracle that makes a difference. It's the transformation that faith evokes. This is what's key. And he wants us to enter into that faith relationship that also includes love. As we'll see a number of times, that sometimes people believe before he speaks, as in the case of the woman with the hemorrhage, Sometimes people speak and ask for his help, as with Jairus or the leper. But in either case, they're engaging him in an act of faith in him. And that establishes a personal relationship with Jesus. That is not just to get stuff, but to engage one-on-one -on -one personally. The more faith a person has, the deeper the relationship can go. And this is one of the reasons he wants these three apostles there with him. Peter, the head of the apostles, and the first martyr, and the last of the apostles to die. All of these is something that we, we want our Lord to uh, speak to their deepening faith. We, today, are very much called to a deepening faith relationship. A lot of times, we are like the people of Nazareth. We've grown up with Jesus, and He's all around our environment, and yet we don't take Him as seriously. That's why He couldn't do a lot of miracles in Nazareth. We're no different than a lot of the people in Nazareth. He wants us to enter into a deeper relationship of faith with Him. And the goal would be to raise us to eternal life, just as faith here led to raising the daughter of Jairus up. Now, later on, she would die, just like Lazarus would die later on. And the widow of Nain's son would die later on. But this would be something that eventually will lead us to eternal life. Or if that's the goal of our faith. And we will have these deeper relationships with Christ that will deepen even after we go to heaven. We will come to uh, very much understand that, you know, they, uh, you know, will, will have a deeper relationship. Heaven will be a lot of growth. So all of us, need to invite Jesus into those parts of life where we feel grief, where we're in pain, where we hurt, where we're sinners. We don't like it. We say, well, Jesus wouldn't like it where I'm sinning. No, he doesn't like it, but he enters in to cleanse it like he cleansed the leper and like he healed the woman with the hemorrhage. He wants us to enter a relationship of faith in which we give him the full truth of who we are and reveal ourselves as we are to him. And this is something that uh, it's very difficult. He could deal with this when we're being phony, but I'll have to break that phoniness down. Phoniness blocks faith. Pretend games, superficiality block faith. Trying just to be nice instead of to be good blocks faith. We deal with the authenticity of Christ. And I think a good way to conclude meditating on this passage is to pray at least the glory be to the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And if you remember to have a copy of it, better pray the Gloria from Mass and just give praise to Him for being in the place where you are and being who you are and asking to help you grow in faith. That's our task, okay? All right, we have 
a caller already online, so I'm going to go right to her. Denise, you're in Maryland? Yes. Great. What can we do to you? Okay. I'm Kevin, and my sister attended a mass with me Sunday. Yes. And she received Holy Communion, but uh -huh. she's not Catholic. Mm-hmm. And so I'll bet... I can I tell her to keep her hurting the feeling? Yeah, yeah. Doing it right. Twice. No, no, no. It's uh, and I'll bet she might belong. She belongs to a church. No, she's my sister. She don't belong to the Catholic Church. I oh, told she can join. Does she, she go to another church or no church at all? Catholic. Does she go to no church at all? No, sir. Okay, great. Here's then. Here's the way I would say it. Uh, so y'all live in Maryland, right? Yes, sir. Now, would you ask her if she would think that it's a good idea for somebody coming over from Russia and start voting in your elections? Yes, sir. She wouldn't like that because that would make her vote invalid, wouldn't it? Yes, father. And here's what I would say to her. You have to be a citizen to vote here. You have the right as a citizen to vote. And you do. Well, you also need to be a citizen of heaven. And belonging to the church gives you certain privileges and rights that you don't have when you don't belong. So ask, you know, say, right now, you have not made your commitment to Christ in, in his Catholic Church, and you are pretending to be in communion with us, when in fact you haven't been baptized in our church, and you haven't joined us, and that would be like inviting somebody from Russia to come vote here to say, yeah, we don't want to help Ukraine, so I'm going to come to America and vote against the Ukraine and help the, the, the Ukrainians. Uh, we don't want them. We'll, we'll discuss that among ourselves as Americans. We don't want the Russians to come here and discuss that, right? And the same thing is true with her being, um, you, know, in, uh, you know, coming to Holy Communion. She needs that faith in Jesus and baptism. And tell her we will be delighted to start preparing her so that she understands what Holy Communion means and understands what baptism means. We really don't want people to receive the sacraments without really understanding what that entails and the responsibilities of it. So it's not like going to somebody's house and getting hors d'oeuvres or something. This is about a commitment and that you want to make that commitment. Uh, and you know, we want you to, but we also want you to know inside your mind and in your heart, this is the truth and that we believe it. And that's what you said. So it's not a matter of disrespect to her. It's just the opposite. It is a matter of respect for Jesus Christ and a respect for her conscience so that she becomes more knowledgeable before she enters into it. Just be another analogy you might use with her um, that, you know, you don't marry a man unless you know him pretty well. If you, he might be good looking, but he could also be mean or it could be dumb. He could be a complete fool. And you, it's a good idea before you marry a man to find out if he's a fool or not. Well, that's what we also want here. We want you to find out, is this the truth about Jesus? And then commit yourself to it, enter with baptism, and be part of our family and not just sort of come in and dabble a bit. That's what I would say. Okay. Also, we have a, an email about uh, from Kitty uh, says, Father Mitch, 
Assuredly, someone with medical knowledge confirmed Jairus' daughter had in fact died with signs such as no breathing or heartbeat. What is the purpose of Jesus announcing out loud she is only sleeping? He must have known the crowd would be dismissive of him. Kitty in Kansas. Well, you know, the way that they would typically find out if somebody was dead uh, and truly had passed away is they would put a feather over their mouth. And if it didn't move at all, because feathers are very light, um, if it didn't move at all, since some places they would have mirrors, but mirrors were pretty primitive in those places. Um, they weren't very good tools, but a feather over the mouth would be the indication that the breath had gone. So we, as we assume that that had happened before because remember, a guy had gone to Jairus to say, don't bother the teacher any longer. Your daughter has already died. So they would have found that out before he even got to the house, let alone inside. And we assume that, uh, uh, again, medical knowledge, it would just be, you know, the, the folk medical kind of knowledge. And that would be uh, one of the things that they would have determined ahead of time. But Jesus, again, uses that idiom of being asleep uh, as a way to talk about death, just because, especially with, you know, you, you think you know, it, some of the hardest moments in my life as a priest has been being with parents who lost a child. You want to be as gentle as you can because their hearts are broken. So this is something that, you know, you, you, you use something that's more gentle than just saying, well, your daughter's dead. No, you, would, you, you, you can't talk like that. Well, a decent person could never say something just harsh like that about them. Uh, you, you try to comfort the parents in horrible grief because as every parent I know has said, uh, I, I wish it were I that died, not my child. That's what I've heard from most parents, all the parents I know. And, you know, I've never met any parents say, oh, I'm glad the kid's gone instead of me. No, 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 no. Um, maybe people like that, but, you know, not, that'd be very rare. Um, instead, you know, it's very important to see that he was gentle. And that's why I said she's asleep. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. So please stay with us. Welcome back. And I just want to invite you to join me tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Live when we will speak with Christopher Pereira about the Tepeyac Leadership Initiative. This is a way to equip lay Catholic professionals to be virtuous leaders and support the mission of the church and influence the culture by serving the common good and by evangelizing because they know more about the gospel when they get better trained. So that's going to be a good thing. Okay. All right. Then we have an email from Jenny. Let's take a look at that. Hello, Father. Uh, after the birth of our Lord, the Holy Family fled to Egypt and then returned. What is the timeline or where and when did the presentation take place? Jenny. Well, first of all, St. Luke doesn't mention the flight into Egypt, and St. Matthew, who does tell us about it, doesn't mention the presentation, As, uh, he, nor does he mention the circumcision of Jesus. You know, these would be the typical things that his mostly Jewish Christian audience 
because St. Matthew was primarily writing for Jewish Christians. And they would have known, of course, he had, you know, bris and you know, circumcision and, and presentation. So he's not making a point of that. Whereas St. Luke, who is writing for a non-Jewish audience, is um, something that, um, you know, he, he mentions those things explicitly, but he didn't include the uh, flight into Egypt. So how do, we, how do we put that in timeline? Well, they went to Jerusalem for the presentation. That's only five miles from Bethlehem, five or six miles from Bethlehem. And so they would, the visit by the three uh, magi would be after that. It would be sometime after the presentation in the temple. So the circumcision of our Lord and the um, uh, presentation in the temple would have taken place before the Magi arrived. And then they would go uh, into Egypt. Uh, and they stayed there for apparently a couple years. And then they came back. And uh, the, the, by the way, in Egypt, there are a number of places identified as where they had stayed. They had to keep moving around. But when, they, when Herod died, um, at mo again, at most two years later, uh, they came along the coastal road uh, and then over to Nazareth. On the coastal road, you can go up uh, towards uh, Mount Carmel. And then at Mount Carmel, there's uh, the Yokneam Pass. You go through that and then to Nazareth. So that's where they, they would have gone. We have another caller there, Rita in Apex, North Carolina. Rita, yes. is that in the mountains? No, that's near Raleigh. Huh. Why is it an apex if there's no mountain? Anyway, that's... I don't know. They did it. <laughs> All right. What can we do for you besides rename your town? Okay. Uh, I always have a question about uh, having faith and having feelings. Yes. Do you have to have feelings in order to have faith? I don't think so, but I don't know. Miss Rita, I'm going to tell yes. you right now, you do not. Or you will. Well, first of all, you're a human being, so it's right. hard not to have feelings about everything, right? Right. You know, feelings. But sometimes the feelings are very down. And see, here's the thing that's going on. When you hear people in the public media talk about faith, they refer to it as feelings. Mm-hmm. And they'll say our, our thoughts and prayers or our thoughts and feelings go to you because these folks, as a matter of fact, the majority of people who are in the news media in particular admit that they do not practice any kind of religious faith. So they don't, I would, uh, and I remember going to a conference in which that was stated by a guy from the media. He was, worked for Reuters at the time. This is mm -hmm. back in the early 80s. And he said, we don't have faith. Our whole attitude is one of cynicism. Hmm. That shows up a lot. And so, you know, they identify faith with feelings. No, people have faith even when they feel very negatively. Mm -hmm. Your faith transcends happiness and sorrow mm -hmm. or fear. The martyrs who did not really want to be eaten by the beasts or put into gas chambers or things like that, mm -hmm. they did not like the idea of dying and they were afraid of the pain Mm -hmm. But they had faith anyway. Mm -hmm. Faith transcends faith. You'll have feelings, sometimes good, sometimes negative, sometimes sad, sometimes mm -hmm. grief. But you have faith in the midst of it all. Because faith comes from making a decision in your will. Uh -huh. Feelings come and go. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. why, same thing with, uh, I don't know if you're married or not, but there are times when you're married and you have kids that you may not feel that you love them. Like, right. my mother said, I'm going to kill you kids. But she <laughs> didn't really mean that. She just was, you know, we were maybe misbehaving. Mm-hmm. And so I might have been right. part of that. And, and, but she, she loved us dearly, but sometimes the, the warm, fuzzy feelings of holding a cute little baby go away when you have a teenager causing all kind of grief. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it transcends feelings to love, too. Right. All right. Okay, well, thank you. That's very good. And I appreciate you. your, your, question, your answers to my question. My pleasure. Let us now go over to Shane in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Father Mitch, what is the difference between praying to God or Jesus? What do you think is the best way to be heard and receive guidance, especially in times when you think a response is needed quickly? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, a couple things here. First of all, Jesus is God the Son. He is God. Also God the Father. You know, we, and we have three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, to be a bit more precise, the Holy Spirit is God who is inside of you praying with groanings too deep for words. He's the one that works inside your heart to help you pray. And you come to Jesus, and through Jesus you go to the Father. It's not that you choose to keep one person out. (laughs) No, all three persons are involved in your relationship. And all three persons are part of your prayer. And getting to know the three persons is very, very important. Secondly, in terms of having the idea of uh, uh, the best way to give to get guidance when it's, you need a response quickly. Um, be careful about making God answer too quickly. Uh, sometimes that's not a good idea because as scripture itself says, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years as a, is as a day. God our Lord doesn't necessarily follow our timeline. Now, In those situations where you have to make a decision, you might have to make it on the basis of your best lights at that moment. And that happens. That happens. You have to decide very quickly. But the normal way that you experience where God is leading you is by a peace that he gives you that stays even when things seem difficult, even in the midst of things not going quite the way you had hoped you, you have to have, you, you seek, you don't have to have, but you, have, you seek out a type of peace and you do the best you can with that when there is, for us, a great rush. And you say, Lord, you know, I, I do this on the basis of your commandments and I do it on the basis of the peace that you give me. That's as much as we can do in some situations. And when we find that ah, it's not working out too well, you might have to make adjustments. Uh, but that can even, even those adjustments of your early decision can fit into God's plan. Okay? All right. Well, I'm afraid that that plan includes that we have to bring this to an end. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and pour his peace upon you to lead you in all of your ways. Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, we can bring you this program and all the other programs that we have here on EWTN with upcoming Christmas specials uh, galore, only because the network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and then we will be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless and take care. Mm